Hey, Vermont Untapped listeners, it's been a while. We're busy working on new episodes to bring you in the new year. But right now, it's election season. As we count down the days, we thought we'd re-release some classic Vermont folklife content and share our 2004 series, Under the Golden Dome, the stories behind Vermont's citizen legislature. In 2004, the Snelling Center for Government commissioned Vermont Folklife to interview 35 former legislators. Vermont Folklife founder Jane C. Beck, along with audio editor and musician Bob Merrill, worked together to create this 10-part radio series. It allows a rare, very human view of our legislature and its workings over the prior 50-plus years. The series demonstrates that within our statehouse, the only constant has been change. Yet under the Golden Dome, a unique citizen legislature, where anyone can serve, continues to thrive. Funding for radio production was provided by the Vermont Community Foundation and the Wyndham Foundation. We'll be releasing the full series over the next week to accompany you during the countdown to Election Day on November 8, 2022. We urge everyone to vote. You can learn more about this series and listen to more episodes of Vermont Untapped at www.vtfolklife.org untapped. When the time to close the boxes arrived, uh, the moderator dumped the ballots out on the table and he sat down started counting the ballots, and he counted Republican, 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 Republican. He'd put them in a separate pile. Republican, Republican. Huh. He said, Democrat. Well, he put that over in the other pile. So then he returned to his counting again. He said, Republican, 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 Republican. Republican, huh, he said, Democrat. He said, well, that son of a bitch had voted twice. At the end of World War II, the Vermont legislature was much the same as it was at the end of the Civil War. It was a part-time citizens legislature that met every two years and adjourned so its members could go home for town meetings and sugaring season. Vermont had not seen a Democratic governor for nearly a century and had never sent an elected Democrat to Washington. The history of Vermont was Republicanism, but it was never a solid conservative. There was always the uh, two parts of the Republican Party. There was the Aiken faction and the, the Dean Davis faction, and so that you had the right and the left within the Republican Party. You didn't talk politics. You talked issues and people. For a state with a population of 300,000, the house was large and unwieldy. Each town had one vote. So the representative from a town of 80 had the same power as the representative from the city of Burlington. Generally speaking, they didn't campaign a lot. They were selected because of the fact that they had been selectmen or school directors, and they really understood uh, some of the practical things that needed to be done. But the process was much more of a town meeting. It was much more of a representative government. It was a part-time legislature, and they were over 
you had to get over by town meeting day because uh, it was time to uh, sugar. <laughs> and so everybody went home, and it was every other year, too. Change began with Ernest Gibson, Jr., a war hero and a liberal Republican who, after the war, introduced a minimum wage, a pension plan for teachers, a state police force, and a graduated income tax. In short, he introduced a more activist government that required a great deal more attention and time than a part-time legislature could give it. We realized that uh, with the state's business becoming more complicated and involving more dollars and more responsibility, that it really didn't make sense to meet every other year. So in 1957, I was able to persuade the leadership in the House that we should provide for reconvening in the second year to consider budget changes or other important matters that might come up in the interim. But there was no way that the Senate was going to agree to that or would agree to that. Asa Bloomer would have no part of changing the procedure. What was good enough for him and his predecessors should be good enough for the rest of us in the 1950s and afterwards. Rutland County's Asa Bloomer, the Senate's cantankerous president pro tem, insisted that the legislature limit the issues that could be covered in the second year. These included the establishment of a Department of Administration, as recommended by the Little Hoover Commission, the bonding of the new interstate highway program, and the consideration of changes in appropriations as needed. The law was finally changed in 1959. The legislature met in 1960 and has met yearly ever since. Another unwritten tradition provided a means to avoid factions developing in a one-party state. They used to have what was called a mountain rule and because uh, it was felt very strongly that the people on the east side of the mountains always had the benefit over the west side or vice versa. So they had the uh, agreement that the governor would first be elected from the, the east and then two or four years, whatever they have, they would say agree that the next governor would come from the west side of the mountains. And so it was known as the mountain rule. It wasn't until 1965 that the mountain rule disappeared from the legislative landscape. From then on, elections would be contests instead of coronations. Despite the disparity of representation of the 246-seat House, the one-town, one-vote rule meant that the legislature was bound to listen to its small towns, and for better or worse, the composition of the House preserved the rural character of the state. It was my greatest good fortune to serve in the 50s. I served with people who were typically 100% Vermonters, who loved this state and who were not playing politics, whose vote was really what it says in our oath, to the best good of the same. And I realize even to this day how much we lost with the 150-man house. We were representatives from the smallest little towns. But uh, these littlest towns, you, they could get up. And of course, many of them had had great experience in town meetings and talking, and they were good talkers. 
Many were also shrewd politicians. One was Lauren Pierce, a well-known lawyer from Woodstock. Veteran legislator Bob Gannett relates one of Pierce's particularly effective tactics, a demonstration of how people were abusing the bounty on porcupines. A town clerk paid $5 for each set of ears. He decided, and he had permission of the speaker, to show how it was possible to fabricate these duplicate sets of ears. So he had a table set in front of his seat there in the front row, and he gave an exhibition of how it could be done with skinning pieces of the porcupine and threading them in a certain way. So it was a first-hand exhibition, and it was uh, very persuasive, and uh, it was the best possible evidence that could be given, and the bounty was repealed. <laughs> it was wonderful. We heard the voices of Glendon Pierce, James Jeffords, Sanborn Partridge, Ray Keezer, Franklin Billings, Robert Gannett, and Graham Newell. All but Glendon Pierce are former members of the Vermont Legislature. The interviews were sponsored by the Snelling Center for Government. This series was produced by the Vermont Folklife Center of Middlebury by Bob Merrill and Jane Beck. Funding for this series was provided by the Vermont Community Foundation and the Wyndham Foundation. I'm Greg Sherrill.